The Bible tells us in Luke's gospel that when the glory of the Lord would shine all around the shepherds, the angel said to them, be not afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. This Christmas season, I want to talk to you about that good news, the news that brings the greatest of all joy. We are in need of good news. I would venture to say that everybody in America, around the world, is looking for some kind of good news. And good news would be in all kinds of shapes and forms. Good news would, would be the fact that we would hear that lockdowns are done. No more masks. Restaurants are open. We can all go inside and eat. What good news would that be? We can actually go shopping without having to stand in line outside to get inside. That would be good news. It would be good news to know that our schools were open so our students could go back to school once again. So those parents who are dependent upon two incomes can go back to work and supply the needs for their families. It'd be good news if Disneyland was open. That would bring a lot of joy to a lot of people's lives. Every one of us is in need of good news. It'd be good news if when I went to the doctor, everything was clean. That is, I got a clean bill of health. It'd be good news to, to hear that those who are close to me, who are in the hospital, have been made well, and they can come home for Christmas. Everybody wants good news. Nobody wants bad news. Everybody wants good news. And so as we think about good news, most of us think about it in the, in the sense that the news that comes is going to change my situation. It's going to change my circumstances. It's going to change my condition, that would be good news if it's in my favor. If it's not in my favor, it's, it's bad news. But Jesus knew that. In fact, even in his ministry, we have told you over and over again that in Matthew chapter 4, when there were all kinds of people coming from all around Galilee, coming to be healed by the Lord because they were blind, they were lame, they could not walk. Some were deathly sick. And they came to Jesus. And they were healed. He healed all of them. But he knew that the change in their physical condition was not going to give them lasting, permanent joy. It would give them pleasure for a season it would give them joy for a while, but it wouldn't give them internal joy. The kind of joy that he offered them. The kind of joy that was characteristic of him because he is the blessed God, the blessed one. It's a word that describes an inner contentment, an inner joy that's not dependent upon circumstances. And so, after healing all those people in Matthew 4 and Matthew 5, he sits down on the slopes of Galilee and begins to preach a sermon. And you know it well. 
all about the Beatitudes, all about true blessing, all about true inner joy. Joy that would come because your relationship with the living God is exactly where it needs to be. That's the joy that he offers. It's not dependent upon physical circumstances, social circumstances, mental circumstances. It's all dependent upon what's on the inside of a person, on the inside of a man. That's the joy that he offers. And there's only one kind of news that does that. Only one kind of news that truly is good news because it comes from a good God. And that news is the only news that brings not just joy, but great joy. This Christmas season, I want you to begin to understand great joy. We should be able to go through this season no matter what the circumstances, no matter how draconian the lockdowns, no matter how bad situations are around us, there is a joy on the inside of us that truly is a great joy. If you think things are bleak and dark for us in America, and they probably are for lack of a better term, unlike any other generation that you and I have been a part of, I want you to think back with me 2,000 years to the darkness and the blackness and the bleakness of the Jewish nation. It had been 800 years since there had been a supernatural event in the land of Israel. It had been 500 years, 500 years since there had been a dream or a vision that would be communicated to the nation of Israel. It had been 400 years since a prophet of God had spoken the words of God. In fact, it had been completely silent and Israel found itself in utter darkness. Think about it. Israel began so great. It began with the father of many nations, Abraham himself. And because his seed would come and bless the nations of the world, there was great hope for Israel. And from Abraham... From Isaac, from Jacob, it was passed down from generation to generation about the blessing that would come to the nation of Israel. And yes, they went into Egyptian bondage, but they were led out by Moses, the greatest leader in the history of Israel. And there was great hope in the lives of the people as through a multitude of miracles, they were led out of bondage to go to a land that God had designed for them, the land of promise. But on their journeys, there was complaining. There was rebellion. There was anger. And over time, God said, that's it. 
And the generation that would complain would, would go off the scene and a new generation would rise up and they would then become the individuals that would go into the land of promise. And the fathers of the families were to lead their families. There was no need for a judge, no need for a king, because the fathers were responsible. They had made a commitment to Joshua that, yes, we will lead our families. We will teach them obedience. We will follow the law of the Lord. And even though Joshua warned them that they would not do it, they said they would do it. But they didn't. So God raised up judges. After God raised up judges, that wasn't good enough for Israel either. So they wanted a king. Like all the other nations had a king. So, so God gave them a king, King Saul. But then King David came. And it would be the son of King David, the seed from the loins of David, that would be the hope of the nation. Solomon would be born, he would lead the nation, he would die, and the nation was split in two. And when the nation was split in two, there was more rebellion, there was more anger, there was more animosity, there was more apostasy. In fact, the apostasy of the nation of Israel grew to such extent that they went into, into captivity into bondage, longing for some kind of light, some kind of shining that would come in the realm of their darkness. And soon they would be led out of that captivity and they would make their way back to the land of Israel. They would restore the walls around Jerusalem and they would begin to wait that somehow, some way, somewhere, their Messiah, would come. But after years of darkness and years of bleakness, there was nothing. And yet there were a few, not very many, but there were a few who anticipated what the, what the priest Zacharias said, the father of John the Baptist when he said these words in Luke chapter 1, verse number 78, because of the tender mercy of God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias was one who was anticipating the sun rise to shine upon their darkness. Where did he get that from? How did Zacharias the priest know that? Because 400 years earlier, the prophet Malachi would have prophesied it. In Malachi chapter 4, in verse number 2, here was the prophecy. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Zacharias knew what the prophet Malachi said about the sun of righteousness who would rise with healing in his wings. And what Malachi did was echo 
what Isaiah had said years earlier. When Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 2, he prophesied, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then again in Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, verse number six, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you, that is the servant, the great shepherd Messiah, I will appoint you as a promise to the people. For in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. I will appoint you as a promise to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So as the prophet Isaiah would prophesy to those in captivity that there is a light that's going to come that will shine down upon your darkness that will be the glory of all Israel. That the prophet Malachi would talk about that sun, S-U-N, of righteousness that would shine down upon his people who arise with healing in his wings. They lived in expectation. They lived in expectation of the light that would shine. So Zacharias would say that the sunrise from on high has visited his people. He recognized the light had come. But where did Isaiah get it? Malachi prophesies it. Isaiah prophesies it. But where did Isaiah get it from? Well, we know he got it from the Lord because it's an inspired text. But Isaiah the prophet would know what Moses said in Numbers chapter 24, verse number 17. For Moses said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise in Israel. Moses prophesied in the book of Numbers about a star, a shining one that would come, that would shed light on the people of Israel. And so even as far back as Moses, there was an expectation of a star, an expectation of a shining light, an expectation of a sun of righteousness, an expectation of the brightness of the glory of Israel that would come and open open the door for access to the presence of the living God. There was this expectation that was apparent in a few. It was apparent in, in Simeon's life in Luke chapter 2, who was looking for the consolation of Israel, 
Remember, he'd given a, been given a promise by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. Remember, it's not Israel's Messiah, it's the Lord's Messiah. It's not your Messiah or my Messiah, it's the Lord's Messiah. So Simeon lived in anticipation of the coming of the Lord's Messiah. The looking for the consolation of Israel, that which Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about. And then there was Anna, the prophetess, who came up to Simeon at the time that he embraced the Lord's Christ and said that the light of revelation to the Gentiles has arrived, for Simeon also knew that the arrival of the Messiah was a star, the shiny one that would shine down upon their people Israel. And Anna, the prophetess, she too would come up and she too would rejoice over the coming of Messiah and she would take what she had seen and heard. And the Bible says in Luke chapter two that there were others who lived in expectation who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. For like Anna, they knew that when the light came, there would be redemption in Jerusalem. Like Simeon knew, when the light came, there would be consolation in all of Israel. Like Zacharias knew, that when the light would shine, there would be peace for the people of Israel. And so when the glory of the Lord would shine all around the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord simply is the manifestation of God in the presence of light. The angel would say, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy. I'm going to give you the news that's going to cause your hearts to rejoice with the greatest of all joy. A joy that's not dependent upon what happens around you, but a joy that is completely dependent upon what happens in you and to you through the coming of the Messiah of Israel. You see, that was the expectation. There was this excitement about the coming of the Messiah. But Israel's Longing had become so cold over the years that by the time the Messiah came, there was just a remnant of people who lived in expectation. So much so that when John the Baptist began his ministry, the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel, the third chapter, these words. Now why the people were in a state of expectation. And all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. You see, as John the Baptist began his ministry, they knew that there was going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. They also knew that when Messiah came, 
he would be, as the prophet Malachi said, not just the son of righteousness, but he would also be the delight of the people. For he says in Malachi chapter three, verse number one, behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. There's a messenger coming. There's a Messiah who's coming who is your delight. Haggai called him the desire of the nations. Haggai 2, verse number 7. So whoever this son of righteousness is, whoever this shining down upon the people is, whoever this star that's coming is, he is going to be the people's delight because he is the ultimate desire of all the nations. So the good news that comes is the greatest of all joy because it meets whatever your desire is and gives you supreme delight. So when John the Baptist was engaged in baptizing people who were coming down from Jerusalem to the Judean wilderness, they came with a state of expectation because they had desires that were unmet and there was no delight in their souls. If you think that the governors of our states and all of their draconian mandates bring you oppression, and they do, think about the Roman oppression in the land of Israel and how the laws of Rome oppressed the people of Israel and how the laws of the Gentiles weighed down upon them. If you think that your day looks dark, Israel's day was completely dark. They lived in expectation. And so when they asked if John was the Messiah, are you our desire? Are you our delight? Are you the star? Are you the son of righteousness? He says these words. John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming. The coming one is coming who is mightier than I. You see, they lived in expectation of the one who was coming. He was called the coming one the expected one. That's why there was a state of expectation in Israel. Later in Luke's gospel, and you know the story about John's imprisonment in Luke chapter seven, he asked that great question when he summoned two of his disciples to come to him while he was in prison there in Machairus down in the Judean wilderness, one of Herod's, Herod's uh, dungeons. He summoned two of his disciples to come to him. He said to them these words, he says, go to the Lord saying, are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? 
And so they would go to Jesus and ask him, are you the expected one? Because you see, that was a title for the Messiah. That's why when the people came down to be baptized, they said, are you the Messiah? They were in a state of expectation for the coming of the expectant one. Where would John get that from? How would John know that the Messiah was the coming one? Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm, which says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, blessing or blessed is the coming one. The coming one. In fact, that was the phrase used in Luke chapter 19 with the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. When they took palm branches and began to wave them and take off their garments and lay them at the feet of Jesus, a symbol of of giving my life to you, of giving all that I have to you. That's why they would take off their garments and let the donkey ride over them because it was symbolic of their desire to give all that they had to this one whom they said, blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who is the coming one. Because they knew that the king is the coming one. The Messiah is the one who comes. That's why the forerunner to to, to the Messiah, John the Baptist, knew of the expected one, the coming one, the one who comes. A title for the Messiah right out of Psalm 118. And they forget that in Psalm 118, there is those words in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day is that? What is the day that we are to rejoice in? Let us rejoice and be glad in this day. What day? The day that the builders rejected the chief cornerstone. It's the day of his crucifixion. It's the day of his death. He was born to die. And then it goes on to say in verse number 24, but blessed is the coming one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because all blessing, all joy, all delight, all desire is wrapped up in the one who comes. And yet, the psalmist earlier would say, in Psalm 40, these words. Psalm 40, verse number six. Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. That's where the title, the coming one, or the expectant one came from. Psalm 40, verse number 6, Psalm 118, verse number 24. Well, John the Baptist knew that. The Jewish nation knew that. And that's why Simeon lived in expectation. That's why Anna lived in expectation. That's why Zacharias lived in expectation. Mary and Joseph. That's why the Magi lived in expectation. What did they expect to come? A star. 
How do they know that? Daniel the prophet would tell the Magi about a star out of Numbers 24 that would come and shine down on the people of Israel. And they would pass that down to their children. And they would pass that down to their children until there were Magi living in in Babylon, living in Persia, who when they saw the star in the east would make their way to Jerusalem. And however long it took them to get there, they lived in expectation of a star that would shine. And when they went to the house and they saw the Christ child, they knew that the one who was coming, the expected one, the star, the son of righteousness, who would rise with healing in his wings, the desire of the nations, the one who would give them delight, they would bow before him and give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they knew, as they lived in expectation of the one who was coming. And so in Psalm 40, you have what is commonly called the superiority in his coming. He says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. You see, there is a superiority in the coming of the coming one. And the expectation would be the fact that there would be offering for sin. And we've learned about this in our study of Hebrews. There would be sacrifices offered for sin. But they were not sufficient until the expected one would arrive and offer the all-sufficient sacrifice. That's why Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, or 6, yeah, 6 to 8, which I just read, is quoted in the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter. We've not gotten there yet, but we soon will be. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes, when the coming one arrives into the world, he says, Psalm 40, verse number six, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. You see, he quotes Psalm 40 because there is a superiority in the coming of the coming one. In the superiority is that all the things that you're doing, all the sacrifices you are offering, they're going to cover your sin, but they're not going to remove your sin. And it was designed to cause in the land of Israel the nation itself, to be able to live in a state of expectation that the Messiah was coming. And so there is a superiority in the coming of the coming one. And then there is the scripture in the coming of the coming one. For he says in verse number seven, then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. In the book, it is written. Why is that so important? Because we've told you in our study of Hebrews 
that everything in the Old Testament is like a huge canvas that paints the coming of the coming one. It paints, paints a clear, concise, and complete portrait of the coming Messiah. That's why the writer of Hebrews goes into great detail to go through all the systems in Israel to show them that they all pointed to the coming one. They were all designed to cause you to live in expectation that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so that's why Jesus would say these words in John's gospel, the fifth chapter, John chapter five, verse number 38 or 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. And then he says in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. In other words, everything in the Pentateuch, everything in the Torah, everything in the law and the prophets was all about me, he says. You missed me and you're unwilling to come to me. But if you believe Moses, if you believe what Moses said, if you believe what Moses wrote about me, you would have believed in me, but you didn't. So when the psalmist says, quoting the words of the Lord in your book, were written everything about me. Not only does it talk about the superiority of the coming one, but it speaks of the scripture surrounding the coming one. And then the submission of the coming one. Behold, I delight to do your will. That's the submission of the coming one. He delights to do the will of the Lord. Listen, the one who is the delight of the people, Malachi 3.1, is the one who delights to do the will of his Father in heaven. In other words, because the Messiah delights to do the will of his Father, he is going to grant you the delight to do the will of his Father as well because he is the delight of the soul of people. And so the, the, the one who comes to offer delight is an offering that delights to do the will of the Lord. That's a submission in the coming one. And then you see the splendor in the coming one. For he says, I have proclaimed glad tidings. I have proclaimed good news of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. The splendor of the coming one is that when he arrives, he brings good news. He brings glad tidings. 
And the good news is all about the righteousness of God. It's all about the truth of God. It's all about the person of God. It's all about the work of God. It's all about God. And that good news is the only news that produces great joy. And the question comes, how is it a people in darkness, a people whose lives were so bleak, who were told and taught to live in expectation of the coming Messiah, lost all hope. So much so that when he arrived, they missed him. Not only did they miss him, they rejected him. How is that? Well, we know from John's gospel in the third chapter, our Lord says these words. He says, this is the judgment that the light, the light, the star, the shining one, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, the light that Isaiah spoke of, that Moses spoke of, the light that Malachi spoke of, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They didn't want the light to shine upon them. They didn't want to come to the light because they loved their sin. People can give any excuse they want to give as to why they will not believe. Jesus gives the answer as to why they will not believe. And that is because they love their sin. And they don't want that sin to be exposed to the light. And Jesus would go on to say, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus would say later on in Luke's gospel, after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, he would be walking on a road, the road commonly called as the road to Emmaus. He would encounter two disciples who were downtrodden and depressed because their Messiah had died. They were living now as if they had no hope. Because their Messiah had been crucified. And Jesus comes to them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, have you not heard? Do you not know about Jesus? And of course, he is Jesus. 
but he has not revealed himself to them. And so as they talk to him, he listens to them. And then listen carefully to what he says to them. So many times we miss this. He says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You see, you believed in what the prophets said to a certain degree, but you didn't believe in all that the prophets said. Because if you would have believed in everything the prophets said, he goes on to say, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Listen, all the scriptures, all the law of the prophets, all of what Moses said, all in the Old Testament, which we would call the Old Testament, all of it spoke of me. Everything did. It was all a picture of me. And you're so foolish and slow of heart that you don't even believe all that was spoken. So when the good news came and great joy was offered, these disciples, having embraced that good news, all of a sudden had no joy because the circumstances around them determined their joy. And Jesus rebuked them because they did not believe in what was said in Scripture. And so as he would then enter into Jerusalem and he would speak to his disciples, he said these words, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of it. That's why I came. That's why I lived. That's why I died. That's why I rose again. That's why I'm going to come back again. Because everything in the Old Testament, every word, every paragraph, every sentence, every chapter, every book is about me. It's all about me. And you refused to believe everything that was said by Moses, everything that was said by the prophets. That's why you have no hope. That's why you have no joy. This Christmas season, if you have no joy and no hope, one of two things is true. One, you're not a believer because you love your sin and do not want to be exposed to the light. Or number two, you are a believer. And yet because you have refused to believe everything in the scripture, you have no joy. If you believe everything that God says, 
which is the good news. It produces great joy. That's why Charles Wesley said it well. Come thou long expected Jesus. You see, we have expectations outside of Jesus. And whenever we have an expectation outside of Jesus, it will always breed disappointment. Unless your expectations are wrapped up in the expected one, the coming one, the Messiah. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. As we begin this Christmas season, once again, note this. That the good news and the only news that truly is good news is the news that is wrapped up in the coming of the expected one. Who is, as the prophets say, the desire of the nations, the delight of his people, the sun that shines down because he's the son of righteousness. He is the star that comes. That's the good news that produces great joy. Let me pray with you. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for today and all that you do. Our prayer, Lord, is that we would live in expectation, knowing that because you have come once, you will come again. And we pray, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper once again, we are reminded that you came to earth. The coming one came to be crucified, that he might come again in all of his glory and splendor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.